All I know right now is this is where the action is. Oh, yes, it is. It, exactly what you're talking about is, is the future of medicine and the future of humanity is to understand the, the energy side of it, the crystal side of it, and the water side of it. Amen. Bring those together and... You know, that's where the food comes and that's where the movement and all the rest of it comes from. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is retired medical doctor, Dr. Tom Cowan. Hello, everybody. I hope you're ready for a deep look at the underbelly of the American medical system today. I know of no better man to explore the truths and fallacies of modern medicine with than the world-famous physician Tom Cowan, M.D., I have shared several patients with Dr. Cowan and have found his approaches to be well-grounded in natural principles that are the living force of authentic healing. Dr. Cowan, a physician for 36 years now, has had a long-time involvement with the Price Pottinger Foundation and written a book with its founder, Sally Fallon, titled The Fourfold Path to Healing, Working with the Laws of Nutrition, Therapeutics, Movement, and Meditation. He spent many years studying and practicing anthroposophical medicine, the system of medicine developed by Rudolf Steiner. Dr. Cowan is respected amongst his many peers and mine as one of the world's most trusted out-of-the-box thinkers, right up there with Zach Bush, MD, who I've also interviewed on my show. His diverse and extensive clinical experience and perpetual pursuit of authentic higher knowledge is the basis of several additional books, which include Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, Cancer and the New Biology of Water, and Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illnesses. In this comprehensive dialogue, Dr. Cowan and I take a very close look at the training a medical doctor receives and the stringent indoctrination processes medical doctors go through. We have a deep discussion of how the immune system is said to function versus what Dr. Cowan feels is the more likely truth of how we deal with viruses, bacteria, fungi, and other potential invasive organisms. Dr. Cowan shares some very interesting insights on how we typically view the disease process versus what he feels, from his observations, is really going on within each of us. We have a comprehensive discussion regarding the connection between the health of the soil, parasite and related infections, and why we are likely to attract such infections as a means of healing versus being organisms simply to be eradicated as though they are the actual cause of one's health challenges. Dr. Cowan echoes Dr. Ibrahim Karim, founder of Biogeometry, in his observation that one of the biggest challenges we face in modern science across the board is their exclusion of quality and their addictive adherence to quantity as their gold standard of measurement, and I could not agree more. Regardless of your age, background, or amount of academic knowledge, this dialogue with Dr. Cowan is sure to be a mind-bending exploration of the truths and fallacies of modern medicine, a great education, and a lot of deep, out-of-the-box discussion anyone with an open mind will truly enjoy and learn a lot from. Enjoy Tom Cowan, MD. Hi, everybody. I can't wait to tell you about my new juve lights. They're so awesome. And one of the things I love, if I have had a long day at work or I'm a little tired, I go sit next to my juve lights for about 10 minutes. And I feel like I've got this warm glow, like I've been sitting in the sun and my energy levels come up, but I don't feel buzzed at all. Like if I was drinking caffeine or tea or anything like that, I feel elevated, but smooth inside. And I really wanted not only to understand for myself, but to help you understand how that works. So I've got Wes Feifner from Juve, one of their technical experts, to tell us more about Juve and how they work. So Wes, how in the world 
is it that I feel so damn elevated but not buzzed out when I'm next to my juve lights? So what juve does is it delivers healing wavelengths of light of red and near infrared, and they stimulate the powerhouse in the cell known as the mitochondria, and that gives you more energy. That's beautiful. So it's really just basically that the infrared's going in there and giving the mitochondria a little natural tickle, is it? That's exactly it. Well, Wes, I know the juve lights come from small to, to really comprehensive sets. What's the price range and what's the discount for Living 4D listeners? We have products from all ranges as low as 445 and as high as 8500 depending on if you're looking for full body. And if you're interested in these products, you can go to our website at joovv.com and use code CHEK check to get $50 off your purchase. It's an amazing product. I love it or I wouldn't be telling you about it. Enjoy your juve lights. Let me know how you feel. Thank you. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. I don't know if you're aware, but there is a tremendous amount of confusion about stretching amongst athletes, therapists, and people in general. For example, here are some misconceptions that result in inefficient, ineffective stretching or may even set you up for injury. A. You should stretch all the muscles in your body in a stretching session. This concept ignores the principle of balance. Think of a bicycle wheel that's out of balance. If you loosen all the spokes, will you get a balanced wheel? Everyone should stretch. Though stretching in general is good for people, there are many people with hypermobile joints. Stretching the muscles crossing such joints increases hypermobility, facilitating joint dysfunction, inflammation, degenerative changes, and pain. If you don't stretch hard enough, you won't get good results. This misconception is common amongst martial artists and unskilled teachers and practitioners of yoga. The truth is that you should consider a tight muscle like a crying baby and move into the stretch gently. Coupling stretching actions with conscious breathing actually enhances short and long-term benefits and long-term range of motion changes. Another common misconception is that you should do a good stretch before an athletic event to get the best results. Though this is a true concept, the problem is that most athletes use static stretching or long hold stretches to loosen tight muscles before athletic events. This, as I show in my scientific stretching program, results in a lot of muscle injuries. This is one of the most common reasons sprinters tear hamstring muscles, and in the course, I show you why this happens. The truth is, even when people have a solid understanding of the physical side of stretching, it's still only a mechanical process. The human body is much more complex than that. Mechanical approaches to stretching don't offer the true depth and power of stretching scientifically. It is well known in many healing arts and well described in books like Stanley Kellman's Emotional Anatomy that muscles, joints, and connective tissue all respond to one's thoughts, feelings, and emotions. This is clearly defined when we study the anatomy of yoga and the chakra system. Each part, be it internal or external, is linked to an associated chakra and corresponding mental-emotional challenges that are unresolved in the individual. Tight muscles often result from such energies being stored in the body. In scientific stretching, not only do I show you how to read the body from many perspectives, I give comprehensive explanations on this process and tips for using stretching, breathing, pressure release, and awareness so anyone can heal and restore emotional and mental balance to their body-mind as part of a holistic approach. Learning to stretch properly gives you a lot of information that can help you at every level of your being. For trainers, coaches, and therapists of any type, the information I share can be applied and greatly increase the effectiveness of one's therapeutic approach. Getting great results is always great for business. 
My new course, Scientific Stretching, will teach you not only the best way to stretch and improve your health and performance physically, but will help you see and realize the deeper mental, emotional, and spiritual benefits of stretching as well. One of the real benefits of the teachings I share is that you learn the language of the body and realize that it's always talking to you, giving you tips, and making suggestions as to where change is needed, be it your exercise program, stretching program, diet and lifestyle, your relationships, or even your overall disposition. In my new scientific stretching course, you will learn what stretching offers us for achieving health and well-being. My 1-2-3-4 model of stretching. Stretching assessments for targeted stretching, including what types of stretching work best in different situations. The pressure release method for improving mobility and flow. The mental-emotional relationships to body restriction. The fascia-water relationship. And much, much more. As with all the courses in my scientific e-learning series, this course is extremely comprehensive and will give you a perspective on stretching that will help you and your clients see tremendous long-term results. For professionals using stretching as part of their practice, scientific stretching will give you the kind of advantage a calculator would have given you in math class before anyone else had one. Scientific stretching includes 11 videos with over 8 hours of education plus a PDF manual to help you follow along. I've developed these techniques in the 37 years of my clinical practice working with all sorts from all sports, so it has been time-tested over a lot of years. My clinical approach to stretching will support balancing your body, reduce injury, speed healing, free trapped emotions, help you read your body and maintain a healthy dialogue with it, differentiate and learn to use pre-event, post-event maintenance, and corrective stretching approaches effectively, and much, much more. Get started now at checkinstitute.com forward slash stretching. That's C-H-E-K institute.com forward slash stretching. You know, turmeric's really, really hot now. There's a lot of scientific research on it, but they're not all created the same. So I brought Autumn Smith on to tell you about Paleo Valley's turmeric complex so you know exactly what the benefits are and why you, like me, should get your turmeric complex from Paleo Valley. Autumn, tell us about your turmeric complex. At Paleo Valley, we are big believers in food as medicine. And so turmeric, of course, it has beat drugs out. We know it's anti-inflammatory. We know it has brain benefits. We know it has joint benefits. But what most people don't know is that a lot of turmeric supplements only contain one isolated compound of turmeric called curcumin. And so what we did instead was create a complex. We added organic turmeric and then ginger and rosemary and clove, which were some of the most DNA protective spices studied. And we created a complex. We added organic coconut powder and pepper for absorption. And so we created a really high quality, highly bioavailable turmeric complex that will hopefully help you to feel your best. And all you have to do to check it out is go to paleovalley.com. That's P-A-L-E-O-V-A-L-L-E-Y.com. And you can use the code CHECK15, that's lowercase C-H-E-K-15 to save 15%. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, I have a very interesting, well-experienced guest at the topics we're going to discuss. That's Dr. Tom Cowan, MD. I've shared clients and patients with Tom over the years, so uh, I, I have some insight into his practice. He's got a background in anthroposophic medicine, which is the system developed by Rudolf Steiner. So he's quite knowledgeable on Steiner's approaches and philosophies. And Tom Cowan wrote Cosmic Heart, which is an excellent book that really 
opens us up to the mysteries of the heart in a much different view than the standard medical model. Uh, Dr. Cowan, you recently wrote a new book, which I have, but I'm brain farting on the exact title. What was that one? Uh, it's called The Contagion Myth. The Contagion Myth. What a beautiful title. <laughs> um, and <laughs> you wrote another book, I think maybe with Sally Fallon, which I read years ago. What was that one titled? Uh, the first one was called The Fourfold Path to Healing. And then there was the Nourishing Traditions book of Baby and Child Care. And then there was Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. And then there was Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness. And then there was Cancer and the New Biology of Water. And they still haven't fired me yet from writing books. So I wrote one more called The Contagion Myth. Right. Yes. And that's the recent one that just came out, right? Yeah. A few months ago. Yeah. I've scanned through it. I'm in the middle of writing a new book myself. So I've, I've have, to, I'm staying quite focused in my reading, but I looked through your book and saw enough of it to see that I'd already picked up some of the body of it from your interview with Aubrey Marcus and other people. But I think it's a very important book for people to not only read, but study. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wanted to, because you've had quite a number of interviews, all of which I've deeply enjoyed, I wanted to take a little different approach with you for my audience today, because many of them are our listeners of a lot of the podcasts and uh, experts that you've appeared with. So what I'd like to do is begin with is asking you some general questions. You know, you've been a physician for quite a long time. How long have you been a, a medical doctor now? 1984. So that's 36 years, although I just uh, one month ago surrendered my license, so I am officially not a medical doctor anymore. How does that feel? Good. Yeah, probably freeing, eh? Yeah. Uh, you know, th that's an interesting point because I've known a lot of medical doctors to get in trouble for practicing things like holistic nutrition and other allied healthcare approaches, which are the kinds of things you've been teaching and using for as long as I've known about your work. Have you ran into any friction due to that? <laughs> as a matter of fact, yes, fair amount. Uh, and, you know, the irony of the friction is it's almost always about technical administrative things. Like the biggest trouble was I, I I actually didn't know this, but it turns out in California, where I had been the last 17 years, it's illegal for a medical doctor to treat a patient with cancer with anything but um, surgery, radiation, or chemo. That's a very interesting concept. Yeah, and I didn't know that. So I was going about my business and trying to help people. And a person who actually did better, but got scared and essentially reported it. And the next thing you know, it's a whole big deal. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yes, I, I have had, you know, I, interesting, you mentioned 1984 was when you got your medical license. That's the year I began working as the a therapist and, well, con the trainer of the United States Army boxing team. That's when my career really began. So yeah, my career and your career are spanning 
the exact same time frame. Yeah, you've been at this a long time. <laughs> I have, yeah. I, and I've yeah. known of your work. And of course, I've been always following the Weston A. Price and Price Pottinger Foundations and Price Price and Pottinger's uh, research and teachings have been very, very integral to all the teachings through the Czech Institute and my whole philosophy. Yeah, no, yeah. we've been... a We've been aware of, I've been aware of you for decades and I I think what you're doing is fabulous. Thank you. I I feel the same about your work, which is one of the reasons I really wanted to share you with my audience. You know, what I'd love to ask you is with all this experience as a physician and the medical system, what have you learned about the modern medical system and what are its strengths and weaknesses particularly with regard not only to the general question but how does that play out today with what's going on in the world right now, i.e., what should people be aware of in this regard? It's a, it's a great question, Paul. And uh, I, I think the answer that I would give today is different than I would give a year ago. Well, that's good because here we are. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so here here's the problem with the medical system. And you know, there's a lot of auxiliary problems like, you know, there's financial reasons and there's maybe corruption and there's maybe collusion. And, and, and I don't really want to get into that stuff Yeah. because here's the problem. The problem is they have a conception of science that is flat out inaccurate. Right. And let, let me just and and so whenever they get into trying to understand like why a person a human being is sick or not sick because of their fundamental philosophy of science and life they can't help but miss the boat right and so they end up being able to there's a few situations where their philosophical outlook works and then there's 98, 99% of the time where it doesn't work. And let me give you a very specific, specific example. In, in modern science, we say that there is no difference between life and death. In other words, all the rules that apply to what happens with a stone, right? Like a, or your chair, those rules also apply to what happens in a fish or a plant or a human being. And, I, you know, as I jokingly say, I'd love to see a double-blind study that proves there is nothing more than physical substance in a living being. Because, frankly, I haven't seen that. And it, it, it frankly, a very unscientific uh, approach to life. Because... It turns out there are many other factors that go into a living being than just substance. And you can actually demonstrate that. You can prove that. So because of that philosophy, you know, if somebody has a, a, a you know, a knife stuck in their leg, that's a very physical situation. And, and pulling the knife out of their leg and sewing their leg up, that tends to be a good thing. But when you under, when you st start to understand or try to understand why somebody gets strep throat and you, you don't 
factor in all the other factors that go into this, you simply can't understand it. You can't see how the human being fits into nature. You know, in, in nature, bacteria digest dead and dying things, right? Everybody who's a gardener knows that. So if you apply that to your tonsils, you know, your tonsils get poisoned and they they're start dying and then the bacteria come to clean up the debris. But we don't think like that in medicine. We just think, you know, very mechanically, if you have a bacteria, they must be causing the disease. End of story. And it's frankly very unscientific and flat out incorrect. Yeah. And so, it, you know, the, the thing that I see is that, you know, I tell people that, look, if you get in a car accident or fall off your roof and break a leg, that a hospital is a useful thing. But any other thing beside that, such as any chronic illness, the tonsillitis, the appendicitis, if you really want to actually heal something, then a hospital is not a good place to be. Right. It's exactly what I was driving at. Yeah. I'm, I'm sort of just trying to re-encapsulate it in a frame that ultimately lends itself to something that people are still not very awake to, but COVID has certainly been helpful in my observation. And that is that it's the diet and the lifestyle that you live that ultimately are the real forms of medicine. And if you keep running to doctors and even therapists that aren't directing you into a greater awareness in how nature functions and how you relate to nature and therefore your environment, then you're really just using this for that approaches, but never really getting to the etiology of the issue. Right. And, and then when you get into, you know, my whole, you know, in the last six months in particular, I've started to do a, a dive that I never expected to do in just what on this biology do we know is actually real? And here's the trouble. Uh, and I don't know if this is exactly what you're driving at here, but but if I was to ask somebody, if 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 I if I want to find out what your hand does, right, and how your hand is made and what it does, like eating and caressing your friend, etc. So here's how I'm going to do it. I, number one, I'm going to cut your hand off your body. <laughs> Number two, I'm going to put it in an enzyme bath to dissolve all the small, soft tissue. Number three, I'm going to freeze it to 150 degrees Celsius. Number four, I'm going to stain it with heavy metals. Number five, I'm going to cut it up into little tiny pieces. And number six, I'm going to shoot it with an electron beam, dye, uh, beam that immediately evaporates all the water. And now I know what your hand does. <laughs> yes. You would think, do you? <laughs> this guy's a lunatic. But that is exactly what the procedure for every electron microscope picture, which is the only way we've ever seen a virus or a cell membrane or a ribosome or a Golgi apparatus or an endoplasmic reticulum. And all of those, frankly, are artifacts. Right. And, and also, that's clearly scientific reductionism. And it misses the emergent properties that are inherent in life. 
whether one thinks of consciousness as emergent or the caressing that yes. you spoke of is an emergent property of the hand and the totality of the physical, emotional, mental integration of being. Yes. You know, interestingly, uh, I'm sure you know the name uh, Goethe. Yeah, of uh, course, yes. Yeah, of course. He said this better than anybody. He said, the problem with Western science started when we wanted to understand the frog and how to, you know, know about frogs and even help frogs. And so what do we do? The first thing is we killed the frog. Right. Exactly. So you can After dissect that, it. You're done. Right. <laughs> the yeah. frog's dead. Yeah, you have to spend time at the pond to observe the frog in its natural environment or you will never know what the frog is. Yes. That's the problem right there. The other thing, too, to keep going with that analogy, the frog is actually not something in and of itself because the frog is really emergent of the lilies, emergent of the water, the bacteria, the viruses, the fungi, the birds, the bees, the flowers, the trees, the seasons. You know, part of what I see going on right now, as as you are well aware, is that this whole approach to COVID is to kill the frog and dissect it and to completely ignore that even if COVID is real, then it is actually emergent of the environment. And so all this attack on the virus or the frog is completely, utterly disrespectful of the fact that we have to say, well, what is the factors in the environment that are producing disease, if it, if, if you want to use that word, or a, a, a virus that has the whole place in lockdown? For Like when I look at a person, say somebody comes to me with chronic neck pain and they've got numbness in their little fingers and they're a secretary. Well, my first thought is, I need to evaluate your ergonomics because it doesn't matter how good I am at centralizing a disc or mobilizing your nervous system or opening up your thoracic outlet. Those are all very temporary things unless I know that your ergonomics are correct. So there we have to look right at the environment. And, and it seems to me that the entire approach to this thing is completely and utterly ignoring the environment. Yeah, and if I could, let me even, because you you actually got to the core of this and used a really great concept, and if I could elaborate that on that. Yeah. The concept that you said was it, it's the frog is an emergent being. I don't know if you used the word being. Yes, I do. Out of all those things you said. Yeah. Let me just make that even clearer for your audience. Yes, please. To show you how different what you're saying is from what normal science says and how your way is much more precise and correct and scientifically valid right yes so here's here's to take a topic we we learned in science and genetics that there's a central dogma of genetics which is there's there's these genes on the dna there's one gene it makes one rna and makes one protein that's the central dogma of genetics now, then we do the Human Genome Project, and we find something like 20,000 genes. And then we find that there's 250,000 proteins. So it turns out 
there is the central dogma is simply incorrect because you can't make 20,000 blueprints make 250,000 products. So it turns out as hard as this may be to believe, but I, I can tell you I have this on a pretty good solid fact. It turns out that most of the proteins are made de novo in the cytoplasm of the cell out of the energy that flows into the cell from the sun and the moon and people and your dog, merging with water, organizing the, the nucleotides and the amino acids to make a, a de novo protein in the cell, no gene required. Right. That's the fact. So in other words, the proteins which do everything in us are made not because some of them are, but most of them aren't, just because the math doesn't add up, right? right. There's mm -hmm. 230,000 of them, which there is no gene coding for. Right. So those ones are made de novo. They're emergent from the life of the cell based on energy flow, interacting with organized water and new, you know, nutrients in the brew, mm -hmm. like come from your diet. And, and so what you're talking about is the things that affect your health are the nutrients, right? That's yes. the stuff in the brew and how you organize your life in ergonomically and, you know, what you think about and how you feel. And, you know, you don't have to confine it to just thoughts or just feelings or no, it's, it's everything it's truly holistic. Yeah, and that's what actually physically, provably makes the proteins, not this DNA theory, which is scientifically invalid. Yet still being adhered to, to this moment. 100%. And if you even say what I just said, they, they, the medical board says, this is unauthorized content and we're going to investigate you. And, and yet I can show it. They should investigate you and, and investigate you to learn. Well, I, I said to him, just tell me what I said was wrong. Then I'll correct it. You know what's interesting about this? You know, I've spent a lot of years studying the history of soil science and farming and organic farming and the whole movement from Lady Eve Balfour and even before. And in my research, I came across several references to a farmer that was a famous British farmer named Friend Sykes. Have you ever heard of him? Uh, maybe, yeah. I think I know you. Well, Friend Sykes was mentioned because after the Second World War, the British Milk Association began to notice that the uh, protein content in milk was diminishing. And so, and I think there was a factor of the fat as well. Like it's been years since about, you know, 25 years since I read his book. And so what happened was, is they, they would get this milk and somebody in the milk department was responsible for analyzing the constituents of the milk. And they begin to recognize that the milk was getting less and less nutrition in it, except they flagged this one farm, which was owned by friend Sykes. And they said, whatever's going on in this farm, his milk is actually getting better and better. Everybody else is getting worse and worse. 
So the British government reached out to him and said, we want to come speak to you because milk across the nation, England, is getting more and more malnourished and yours seems to be improving and we're confused as to why that is. And he said, well, I'm happy to show you, but you're probably not going to like what the results are. And so they were a little confused and wanted him to explain. He said, when you come, I will show you. So what happened is they sent a bunch of representatives to his farm, which he was farming organically and doing things properly. And he showed them exactly how his milk got better and better and how you have to green manure and how you have to rotate crops and fields. And he said, the reason I told you you're not going to like it is because it actually requires two things, farming skill and real work. And farmers today don't want to do either of those things. They just want to, you know, industrialize it and automate it and make it simple. Now, this is in the 40s, for God's sakes. Yeah. And so, really, when you think of what Friend Sykes was talking about somewhere between 1945 and 1950, if they were concerned about the loss of nutrition and milk then... And commercial fertilizers didn't really kick off heavy till after the Second World War and the pesticides and all that. Imagine what in the hell is going on now. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about some serious degradation. I found an article probably 15 years ago that it was from the British Soil Association. They did an analysis of a head of lettuce from... Uh, a typical farm in England at that time. Actually, they went into the supermarket and bought a head of lettuce and they had research showing the nutritional value of lettuce going back. And they showed that to get the same nutritional value as one head of lettuce 20 years prior, you would have to eat 50 heads of lettuce at that time. Yeah. Now that's, you see, so here we are in this whole pandemic thing where everybody's all freaked out. And when you look at the people that are having the problems, it's the same people that are having problems with seasonal flu. And I call them Humpty Dumpty sitting on the wall, but they're living largely only four to 6% of the food in the world eaten is organic. So we got 94 to 96% of the world population eating off of dead soils, eating chem- chemically laden foods that are damaged by processing, damaged by all sorts of, of uh, industrial things like uh, radiating and, and uh, plastic packaging and X, X fact, many, many such factors. So it amazes me that people aren't, people in the government, people that are supposed to be responsible for the health of a society or a nation are not even paying one bit of attention to this And this rapid delivery concept seems to be getting worse and worse to the point. I've even heard people talking about 3D printing food now. I'm like, okay, what are you going to make that out of? Right. And and it's basically this idea, you know, this radical idea that your friend, friend, whatever his name is, was doing was simply integrating his cows into the normal systems of nature. Right. Right. There's nothing particularly radical or crazy about that. He was just reproducing what herbivorous animals, how they live and get healthy. And that somehow has become some 
uh, radical or subversive concept in modern life. I mean, yeah, that's us. that that's that does not suggest progress at all. <laughs> that's for sure. That's not progress. It, it, that's crazy. This opens up another can of worms too. I mean, here we are with the most advanced phones in the world, the most advanced communications technology. Uh, you know, we've got x-rays, uh, that have now become functional MRIs. We can put people on the moon, but we seem to have completely forgotten that all those technologies are usually based on the use of ideas, but that the body that engages those ideas is actually bound to the laws of nature so it's as though we've accelerated with the intellectual or mental realm but we've degenerated the body that holds the brain that fuses with the mind or the field of consciousness from which we all exchange ideas which to me is kind of like making a fantastic radio and then pouring shit food into it and wondering why it's shorting out. Yeah, I I look at that a little bit differently because I you could say that we have fantastic ideas that come about that come to life in these phones. But I I think we don't have fantastic ideas. We have very specific kinds of ideas mm -hmm. which are all basically technologically and binary based we then material so the way it works is these ideas actually become physical substances become you know machines right mm -hmm. and and we transfer that same concept which is, I would say, degraded ideas, and we we use the same way of thinking to talk about food and the quality of the milk and the quality of interaction between people and the quality of why we get sick. And the fact of the matter is that doesn't work in those realms. And the reason it doesn't work in those realms is because life is about quality, not quantity. Yes. The reason you eat this carrot and not that carrot is not the number of hydrogens or sulfurs or whatever. It's because this carrot has a better quality. Right. The reason you sit, you buy this chair and not that other chair is because this chair was made by a chair guy who cut the wood and it's a better quality. Everything to do with life is the science of quality. Yes. And we don't actually acknowledge that quality in our minds. We have this theory that quality doesn't exist. And so we can make stuff that's based on quantity, like binary numbers. But as soon as you talk about what is the quality of the experience of a conversation with two live people versus on a, you know, a phone, then that doesn't exist. Uh, okay, I was just writing a note so I didn't have to interrupt you, but uh, if you think of everything we've discussed so far, and it began with the, your explanation in our dialogue on scientific reductionism, which is materialism, 
It's interesting to note that the science of quality is a subjective science at large or a subjective domain, and the science of quantity is objective. So it seems as though as we've oriented ourselves towards if it's not weighable or measurable, it doesn't exist, then we've also detached value from subjective experiences of quality because for example if 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 i was to say to you what's the quality of your relationship with your wife you would have an answer for me but it would be based on your own inner experience not anything you can weigh or measure right and it seems to me that what you're describing with regard to quality and and i don't are you familiar with ibrahim karim the founder of biogeometry very much so. Yes, he has the science of quality. Yes, because he's he's a friend of mine, and I've done two amazing podcasts with him and his daughter. And he's sharing his new book with me uh, as it's writ. He's going to be giving it to me soon because he's supporting me with my new book. But we've had a lot of discussions around the issue of quality, and he's actually the first person that I know of in the world that's developed a system to actually objectify quality so yes. that people can begin to actually see it and work with it. And, yes. and I think that's a very, very important move right now. So I'm really grateful for that. Paul, let me, let me give you another a concrete example. Of sure. This. You know, I because I wrote about the heart and I talk about how the heart creates a vortex and all this. And so I, I've had conversations with like heart surgeons and so they don't believe in anything but the physical body, right? That's right. that's just their philosophy, their axiomatic. So I, the pump. I, yeah, because I'm a bit of a smart aleck, I, I asked one guy, so do you love your wife? He said, yes. I said, with all your heart? He said, yes. I said, if you dissected your heart, do you think you would find something called love in your heart? <laughs> and he said, no. I said, well, how much, he said, the only thing that's real is quantity. Right. So I said, how much do you love your wife? Eight or 10 or 64 or what? And obviously those are all ridiculous questions. Yeah. My point of it is there is no such thing as a physical love in your heart. And yet every human being has the experience of loving somebody with all their heart. And they can't put a number on it because it doesn't exist as a number. It's a it's a science of quality, which is which is actually how we live, right? We don't we don't go out on a date with this person because somehow their numbers add up to a higher amount. We go on a date with this person because something moves in us that says my life will be better. If I have a re relationship with this person and not that person. Right. And so the reality is everything in our life really is based on quality. And yet science says quality doesn't exist. Yes, you use the word love there in your analogy. And I'd like to share with you, I spent years meditating and researching what love really is. And my soul gave me two definitions. One is love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection 
to self and or other. Love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self and or other. Other means any other, like person, place, or thing. Right. And my soul told me love is consciousness becoming aware of itself. Yeah. Great. I mean, there you go. And neither of those actually can be measured in a quantitative sense. No. And, And as a therapist who's worked with countless cases of people with heart diseases of various types, that's one of the reasons you and I have shared some clients, I've never found that the etiology of their problem is specifically diet and lifestyle. It's a factor, but I've found in every single case it break it's due to relationship conflicts and breakdowns. Correct. And that's why I have to spend so much work on helping them get clear on what their dream for the relationship is, which is going to go directly to the quality of the relationship. And what are you willing to do to either bring harmony and equality into the relationship so that both parties are happy or move on so you don't keep all these ghosts in the closet that are raising your blood pressure, stressing your heart, and causing addictive eating patterns as a compensation for what can't be addressed without you. I can't get a person to change their diet if I don't address the beliefs and the behaviors that are driving the choices that they're making. Absolutely. And so what you're dealing with is the reality of life, right? Exactly. (laughs) That's reality. That is the problem. (laughs) And here's the paradox and what origin to your original question. The problem with modern science is they don't think those things exist. Not that they're not relevant. They don't even think they exist. If I, when I was in medical school and, and I once gave a talk and I suggested that there were non-physical aspects to a human being and how they do, right? Like yeah. these kind of things. Yeah. I mean, the people in the rooms, they went like this. Ooh, like I was talking about ghosts or something. Yeah, and and that's it's crazy. You know what? This this brings up something. I, I, I might have this later in the in the interview, but Tom, I have got to ask you this. I've been working with doctors for my whole career, and I have had so many intense arguments over stuff like this, and. I have to say, look, I'm a human being just like you or anybody else. But when I see something repeatedly not working, immediately it says to me, then we're doing it wrong or we've got the wrong philosophy or the wrong gestalt. And I start investigating every aspect of literature, allied, uh, direct, indirect, You know, I look at a situation just like you do a differential diagnosis on a human being. There's lots of things that can cause heart pain. There's lots of things that can cause shoulder pain. But very few people go outside of this little narrow box they're in. And my my real point I'm driving at is I can't figure out for the life of me why so many doctors and people with academic degrees keep doing the same shit repeatedly when it's clearly not friggin' working and I'm like, looking at this, I grew up on a farm. If we would have functioned that way, we would have starved to death. 
<laughs> right. right. So like, right. how do you keep giving drugs that don't work and doing surgeries that aren't addressing the real issue? I'll give you a good example. I can't even count the number of women that came to me after having a hysterectomy who still had exactly the same pain as identical, except now they had an additional injury and lost their uterus. And when I look into the factors of their life that we're talking about, such as relationships, diet, lifestyle, and we got those addressed, their pain went away. And every single one of them came back to me with tears in their eyes and said, you know what I've learned from working with you? I would still have my uterus if I would have come to you first. And I said, I hate to say it, but you're correct because every woman that's come to me first still has a uterus and it works really well. Right. So I like, what is it that the indoctrination does that cuts out half of a person's brain? Here's an example that may help with this because it's a great question, Paul. So one of my scientific heroes is a guy named Gilbert Ling. Mm -hmm. And he he was, uh, as a graduate student, he was working on the sodium-potassium pump, right? Right. It's one of the most important discoveries in medicine in the, in the 20th century. Right, yes. It keeps, and so he, he essentially uh, ran the numbers because the sodium-potassium pump uses ATP as the so-called fuel to run the pump. Yes, I, I remember studying that in Guyton's textbook of physiology. Right. So he did a very simple thing. He measured the amount of ATP that would be needed to run the pump to get this the, the observed distribution of sodium and potassium across the inside to the outside of the cell. And to his surprise, after I think it was like seven years of doing experiment after experiment, he found that the number of ATP needed to run the pump was approximately 30 times more than the total ATP available to the cell to do everything. Wow. So there's In a other words, problem the philosophically. Your house is, is uh, 20000 a month and your salary is 2000 Yeah, that's The numbers a don't add up. So he goes to the, the head of the department. And he says, here are the numbers. I checked and checked and checked. There is no way there is a sodium-potassium pump. There is no way this can work. The math doesn't add up. There is, I, I did this so many times. I checked the literature. They all got it wrong. The head of the department looks at him and says, I don't have any problem with your numbers, but if but you will never get anywhere in science if you question the sodium potassium pump we are not going to publish this and that's the answer it, it it's simply nonsense and he proved it he proved it meticulously because he knew how how they were going to attack him and yet it made no difference to the to the people who are promulgating and writing in the textbooks that's why you learned it in guidance physiology. Every doctor believes it. They have drugs that affect the sodium-potassium pump. I can tell you 100% sure the sodium-potassium pump does not exist. So why do they think it? I don't know. Yes. It's literally crazy. Hi, everybody. 
you guys want to know one of my secret weapons that helps me avoid being sick or feeling run down? It's Organifi Immunity. Organifi Immunity is a super high quality certified organic drink mix that provides daily immune support and supports overall immunity. Organifi Immunity contains whole food vitamins C and D, whole food zinc, mushroom beta-glycans, and provides only natural sweetness. Not only will you support your immune system, but you'll also get on-the-go superfoods in a delicious orange blend that is great for you and your kids and everyone will love it. My family and I love it and it's easy as tearing off the top of the package and mixing it with high-quality drinking water and you can rest a little easier knowing that you're enhancing your immune system, which is probably a good idea now that so many people are spending so much time indoors, breathing indoor air, and lacking sun exposure. Why not enjoy a little immune insurance while getting certified organic nutrients, superfoods, and great taste that's quick, easy, and effective. To get your Organifi immunity and shop their amazing product line with your Living 4D discount, go to organifi.com and save 20% on any and all of their products using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K20. That's check 20 during checkout. Enjoy Organifi. Hi, everybody. I've looked into magnesium supplements in my many years as a therapist and found, unfortunately, most of them are junk until the day Wade Lightheart handed me his magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizers, which is a very, very specialized product that they did a lot of research on. Wade, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about what makes magnesium breakthrough so unique and so potent. Well, number one is that we realized that Different types of magnesium are absorbed by different parts of the body. So we tested virtually every magnesium product there was on the market, and it came down to seven different ones that produced the best aspects or best effects over the broadest amount of people. We combined them without any weird excipients or you know, some of the chemical agents that other companies use. We don't use any of that stuff. And we combined it with humic and fulvic acid as well as B6 to make sure that it's absorbed and utilized by the body. That's excellent. I really love it because one of the things I love about all your products is I can actually turn people on to them. They buy them. And I've never had a single person say to me, those products don't work. Everybody that I know has continued to buy Bioptimizer's products to enhance their life. Where can people get it? And what's their discount? Just go to www.magbreakthrough.com slash living 40 and put in your coupon code Paul 10 and you get a 10% discount. And of course, everything has a 100% money back guarantee. You can't get better than that. Enjoy. Did you know that symbiotica means harmony? And you're really likely to enjoy my podcast with Sherveen Jaffaria, the founder of Symbiotica. Symbiotica is an amazing company that makes excellent products to aid healing, enhance longevity, and improve performance at all levels of your being from your spiritual practices to your athletic endeavors. I highly recommend you go to Symbiotica.com and check out their top-notch organically sourced products that include excellent tasting supplements like their Synergy Vitamin B12, which elevates energy naturally, to their Shilajay Minerals, which help you better regulate your hormonal system. Their biocharge-activated coconut charcoal is an excellent detox support and removes toxins and poisons from the body quickly and non-invasively. Their organic longevity formula is one of my friends and students' favorites. They rave about it. I really enjoy their Regenesis Liposomal Glutathione for its amazing antioxidant powers, which is really helpful for anyone that enjoys vaporizing tobacco and herbs like I do. They also have great immune support products, water filtration options for drinking and showering, and some cool clothing and more. 
when you go to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com and use your Living 4D discount code, which is capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15 on checkout, you get 15% off anything they sell and you won't be disappointed. Enjoy Symbiotica. A very pertinent point that I've been bringing up on podcasts and I want to bring it up right now with you. What's been going on in the name of science for quite a long time, but very strongly during COVID, is that all sorts of stuff is being pawned off as science. Yes. And I am deeply concerned that science has completely lost touch of any concept of morality, which goes all the way back to the nuclear bomb and Einstein's and others' worries about how that would be used in that technology. Tesla had deep concerns about how his technologies would be used. Uh, and we've got real scientists on the planet. And now, I interviewed Irvin Laszlo, and I said, you know, I'm really concerned. We've got all these drugs, and we've got 5G, and we've got all these very dangerous things in the world right now that are all validated by science. Every single drug that had to be pulled off the market because it was killing thousands of people was first scientifically validated. My, one of my big concerns with this whole COVID thing is we are now at a point where science is actually losing any validity while it's also being used as the trump card to justify almost every destructive thing from Bill Gates's idea that we can't feed the world with organic farming, so he's got to do it with GMOs and soy-based fake meats. I mean, the list is so long, it makes me want to vomit. I'm curious as to your thoughts. Is how are we going to restore science back to science so that we can actually trust that somebody's feeding us some truth? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, one of my standard answers to that is the trouble with science is it's not very scientific. Well, yes, but, you know, think of people like James Clerk Maxwell and the founders of quantum physics. And, you know, like I look at someone like William A. Tiller's research and I see real science. I look at Dean Radin's research. I see real science. I see people doing Real science, and one of the ways you know they're doing real science is because everything that they show you goes completely against what so-called science believes. So I know that there are great scientists out there that are really true explorers that are driven by one thing only, and that is the pursuit of truth. But when you get so many scientists on the payrolls of major corporations who are being said, you get the results we want or you lose your job or worse. It's, it's as though the same corporatocracy that's behind a lot of the crap going on now has also got a, a death hold on science as well. Right. And, and when you actually, so, you know, all I can say about that is, you know, I see my job as to, dissect the science you know that we're told is true and see whether it's true or not and actually hold it up to the light and i can give you i can give you an example that has to do with covid if you want absolutely so let, let me just say this let, paul imagine 
I have a new theory, which is that um, little bits of paper that are scattered around on the ground outside houses gets into the house, uh, reproduces itself, blows up the house, and scatters itself all over your lawn. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I think that is because I went to all the houses in my neighborhood and I didn't see any pa- little bits of paper anywhere except maybe a few scraps. And then I came back two weeks later and the old decrepit houses were smashed to smithereens and there was lots of paper outside the house. Some of the paper had Dostoevsky's name. Some of it had the New York Times. Some of it Mad Magazine. Funny you chose Dostoevsky's name with his dark philosophy. That was a good choice. <laughs> right. So here, here's my theory that the paper got in, reproduced itself, blew up the house, and that's why you see it scattered in millions of pieces. My guess is you would think I was a nutcase. And, you, and if I said, no, Dostoevsky blew up your house, you would say, Tom, that's crazy. He's dead. <laughs> He's dead. But that here's the evidence for the fact that viruses cause disease. We can't see them in the beginning in your in your in your fluids, and then something happens. Your tissues blow up, and now we find millions of little pieces outside in your bronchial fluid. They're from all different sources, all different little bits of genetic material. We can't tell. And I have a quote from Viruses 2020 in May. We can't tell whether this piece of genetic particle in your lungs comes from the outside or is just something that came from you breaking down. Right. We can't tell the difference. And so out of that came the theory. None of these steps, we've never seen the virus attached to the membrane. We've never seen it reproduce in the cell. We've never seen it make thousands of copies. We've never seen it blow up the cell. All that is absolutely pure supposition. All we know is we couldn't find it. Now there's a lot of it, just like the paper, and it's scientific nonsense. And we are locking down the whole world based on scientific nonsense when the reality is we have proven that all these bits of genetic debris are just tissues and cells breaking down. Why? Because you're feeding the person shitty food. You're putting 5G and other weird energies in. They're not in the sun. They're not exercising. They're not moving. They have bad relations. All the things that you've known about for 40 years, that's what blew up the cell. And Turns out a little boy in a bicycle comes by and says, by the way, Tom, I, I happened to see somebody with a wrecking ball come and blow up and with dynamite blow up the house last week. It wasn't the paper. Right. He didn't come and blow up the house. Yes. It was the wrecking ball. <laughs> and, and we don't. And, and what your whole work is. What is the wrecking ball? Right. And nobody believes the little boy, even though he saw it happen. <laughs> he saw it. He said they came with dynamite. They blew up the house. It's not Dostoevsky. He's dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, th- this sort of leads me to, are you familiar with the work of Philip Callahan at all? 
I've heard the name. He wrote the book Paramagnetic. Uh, I think it's Paramagnetic Energy. He was the first one to identify. Uh, he was the first one to measure, develop a meter that could measure paramagnetic. He was the first one scientist to identify that during high energy solar flares that photons could be broken into monopoles that the paramagnetic monopoles were attracted to the south pole of a magnet and the diamagnetic monopoles were attracted to the north pole of a magnet and he wrote a book called tuning into nature uh, he wrote several excellent books yeah. but anyhow he's an he's an he was an expert at soil science and a, and a scientist he also demonstrated in the Great Pyramid, I believe it was, one of the Great Pyramids in Egypt, that by taking a paramagnetic object, uh, uh, I, I can't remember what it was made of, but it was highly paramagnetic, and he showed he could levitate it inside the pyramid because the stones in the pyramids had so much paramagnetic energy that it had the same effect as a south-on-south as repulsion. Yeah. And it literally shows an object he put in there hovering over the king's chamber. And so... When I was developing my course called Healing Fungal and Parasite Infections, I consulted him. He was still alive at that time. And I actually consulted him in a phone conversation and, and shared some of my theories of parasite infections. And, and I'm bringing this up because when you follow the taxonomic tree back to the beginning, you get to viruses, fungi, and bacteria. So it, I find this whole overreaction to this so-called virus issue, a bit ignorant of the fact that we're largely bacteria, viruses, and fungi more so than we are human, as you know. So it's almost like we're attacking ourselves without realizing it. And when I was talking to Callahan, I said, what is the first thing that you do as a farming consultant if someone calls you and says they have a parasite infection in their cattle, their sheep, etc.? He said, the first thing I do is test the soil. In every single case that I can remember, there was significant imbalances in the minerals of the soil, which results in a diminishment of the electromagnetic field, which is correlated with a decrease in the nutritional value, not only in the plants, but in the growth of the plants. And any animal eating them is susceptible to parasite infections because it weakens their bodies and their immune system. So he said, my approach is first to balance the soils before I start going and spending tons of money trying to kill bugs because it will be extremely temporary. And so what I'm pointing out in regard to this whole issue is all parasitic organisms, be they viruses, bacteria, fungi, are, are opportunistic organisms. And those Beings, be they plants, animals, or humans with weak immune systems, create the opportunity for them to survive. And here, one of the best soil scientists and, and scientists I've come across is telling me you can't even begin to address those types of affections in, until you address the actual balance of the soil, which is the basis of the food people are eating. Yet here we are with massive problems from Roundup and chemicals galore, and, and we're just going further and further down that very rabbit hole, and yet nobody seems to be paying attention other than people like Zach Bush and yourself and just a handful of people. I've talked about this stuff on podcasts and with people like Brian Rose on London Real, but it's like, how, how, how far 
are we going to go before we actually realize that all of this trillions of dollars and horse shit we're doing should be spent to rehabilitate the soils, clean the water and clean the air and get back to the balance that's going to keep us all healthy because nothing else is going to work, in my opinion. Yeah. And so here, uh, Paul, I'm going to I'm going to uh, respectfully disagree with you a little bit. OK, I love it. OK, here's why. Okay. You see, and, and I went through this myself um, and I came to the conclusion that I was not seeing it properly. And here's why. So I used to think, and, and I'm going to be trying to be as careful I can, as I can with the words. Okay. I used to think that um, the reason you would get, let's start with parasites and then we're going to go to bacteria and then we're going to go, go to viruses. Okay. I used to think that you get a parasite infection because you're weak and that provides the soil for the parasite to live, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of what you said. Yes, I have other factors. I just kept it succinct. Right. But here's what I came to. Here's the sequence of events that happens. Um, if you have, as you say, mineral deficient soil. Yeah. And the plants are mineral deficient. The animals are mineral deficient because they eat mineral deficient plants. Right. What happens next is... The body says, I need something with a similar valence to calcium or, or, or potassium. And so I'm going to absorb heavy metals into my body because they have a similar valence as, as the healthy minerals. Can you give me, uh, clarify valence for me? So a calcium has a plus two charge. So instead of that, I'm going to absorb lead, which also has a plus two charge, because I need something of the same charge. Yeah, so you're looking at the body from an electrical perspective. So, partly, yes. So what happens next is, so that was a compensation move by the body. First step, no minerals or less. Then you compensate by absorbing uh, uh, heavy metal toxins. Then... The parasites come not as an infection, but we know they eat heavy metals. So they're trying to get rid of the metals that you, your body was forced into keeping in its tissues. In other words, this is not an infection at all. This is bioremediation. Okay. Yeah. I can, I can totally align with that. Okay. Let's go to bacteria. Yeah. Again, bacteria in nature, we know. You know, you cut down a tree, you get the fungus and the bacteria, they convert the tree into humus so that the tree, the forest can live, right? right? So you have that in your tonsils, you, you put, you know, poisons, heavy metals or whatever in your tonsils, your tonsils are dead and dying. The bacteria are not an infection, they are a bioremediation strategy. Right, I like that. I, I've, I heard you talk about that with Aubrey and I loved it. Okay, so they they there to clean up the debris, and then and so you can rebuild healthy tonsils, and that's why what you see is if you kill them, the symptoms get better, and then you go through the same process again and again. Yes. Okay, that's bacteria. Mm -hmm. They're eating top dead and dying tissue. Right now, viruses. There is no virome. There is no viral ecosystem. But the idea of a virus is a misconception. A virus is what happens when 
your tissues are poisoned somehow. Yes. Like imagine you have tissue, your lungs are poisoned from glyphosate, aluminum, 5G, whatever, right? Yep. Bad feelings, emotions. Life. <laughs> life. It breaks down into all these particles of which, which have genetic material, and we mistakenly call those viruses. Yes. There is no viral ecosystem. This is just a, a it's, it's basically a sloppy concept to make us think that there is some importance to this realm. There isn't. This is just garbage. I, I agree 100%. So that brings up a couple of questions and a comment. One, the taxonomic tree was not developed with any medical concerns of viruses, and they included viruses as far back as I can study medicine. Viruses are included in the taxonomic tree. So my question for you is, how did they come up with the concept that viruses, bacteria, and fungi are the base of life if, as you say, viruses if I'm understanding you, don't really exist. A virus is a misconception for an idea of any dead or dying tissue will naturally break down into pieces and some of the genetic material which is in the tissue or cell gets encapsulated and that is what we erroneously call a virus. And so that's also the exosome, isn't it? It's it's even called sometimes an exosome. Yes. But even that, we put too much importance on that. This is just garbage. Right. There's nothing more to it than that. Now, I would admit that you can understand, you know, the people who live in this house versus that house to a certain extent by looking at their garbage, right? These people have, you know, organic garbage and these people have weird plastic garbage. Right. But there's nothing more to it than that. And it took me an entire year of going through the history and the literature to come to. And and I remember when I first did, I remember it was the middle of the night and I started laughing. And my wife says, what the hell are you laughing? (laughs) I said, because it finally got through my stupid head that we're studying garbage. There is no viral, there's no viral ecosystem. There's nothing to study here. It's just breaking down into garbage. Biscuits, why do we think this? The same reason we think there's a sodium potassium pump. Right. The same reason we think bacteria cause disease. Because you can't separate cause from effect. The same reason people think God will burn you in hell for sinning. Yes. Same reason. So back to the question then how do you think viruses got put into taxonomic trees without that conception at hand? They just made it up. Okay. So you think they made it up? They made it up. Same as the sodium potassium pump. Here's another, here's another example I read the other day and I happen to like deuterium depleted water, Uh but there was an article and he said, the guy said, yeah, deuterium depleted water is great, and it works on the nanomotors in the mitochondria. And the nanomotor spins 4,000 RPMs. Oh, I've seen spits, that. Yeah, right. So now, if I was talking to this guy, I happen to know the guy, I would say, oh, that's interesting. Are you sure it wasn't 3,999 RPMs? Right. Well, yeah. 
was close. How about 3,910 to, my point is, I could keep going down until I got to about zero. Right. And the reason is because, you know, the fact of the matter is he never measured the RPMs. He just took the number of ATPs, you know, and divided it by hours and said that must be spinning at a certain rate. And then why is it a nanomotor? Because he looked in the, in the, in the microscope and he couldn't see an actual motor. So he said it must be smaller than what we can see. Therefore, it's a nanomotor. Right. Yes. It's, it's, it's just scientific make believe. There is no nanomotor. Yeah, I, I understand that line of thinking, and, and I'm aligned with you in that regard. I have another question, though, in this regard. You've studied anthroposophic medicine. I think you're very aware of the depth of Steiner's perception, clairvoyance, genius in many areas. And I have in my library a hundred, almost 180 books that are by Rudolf Steiner himself and or other authors that took notes from his lectures or are so-called Steiner experts. And in several of them, Steiner himself speaks of viruses and talks about them as a byproduct of the breakdown of cells, similar concepts that you're sharing. So I would ask you then, how did Steiner even speak of viruses as things if they aren't there? There is there are particles that come from the breakdown of the tissues. Um, I happen to think that that when I read Steiner on this, I ended up thinking he was partly confused by the whole thing. So on the one hand, he says this is nothing more than poisons being secreted by the cells. Right. And on the other hand, he says these may be pathogens. Okay. And I have no idea why he said that. And I ended up um, coming to the conclusion after all these years that I can't really end up trusting anybody except what I end up thinking for myself based on my own research and my own thinking. Well, I think that's, I think that's healthy. Uh, and, and, you know, It's not that I'm not wrong. I'm wrong all the time. When I read some of my old books, mm-hmm. I think, what the hell was I thinking? But I can tell you one thing, Paul. Every single thing I got wrong, and there were a lot of them, it, I got wrong because I believed the dominant narrative too much. Yes. In other words, somebody told me that there was a sodium-potassium pump. Everybody believes it. Right. So okay, I don't really know, so I believe it. I understand. Or I believe that there are ribosomes in the, nu- in the cytoplasm. Right. And I never looked at the original study to see whether there are or not. I never saw how they came up with this idea. I just sort of didn't want to go there, and, you know, I just didn't look into it. So I said, you know, RNA is transpro- translated into protein in the ribosomes. Now that I've looked into it, by being forced to, essentially, I realized there are no ribosomes. It's an artifact. And why do I think, I, I, I can prove it to you. Uh, why do I think that? Because, and why did I think it before? 
I just didn't look into it. Right. I got it wrong. It takes a lot of effort and discipline to really track everything back and everything down. I've, I've, you know, everybody that spends any time with me knows I spend a huge amount of my time and energy doing exactly that. But the magnitude of the complexity of the human body makes it impossible to track all that down. There's not enough time in a human lifetime. Even if you worked at it 24 hours a day. I can tell you that there's a shortcut, which I just discovered about six months ago. Well, I do. I know the shortcut. It's fine guys like you. <laughs> well, here's the bigger shortcut. Uh, go and read a guy named Harold Hillman, yeah. who was a British biologist. And for instance, he, he proves that there are no synapses in the nerves. <laughs> That's great. Now, imagine that, because... Our entire neurology is based on, you know, synapses and neurotransmitters and vesicles that release these and postsynaptic junctions. And, you know, I have right here a book for the case for the new paradigm in neurobiology, 100 pages on where did they get the idea that synapses exist. And I, I tell you, you read it and you think, this is fucking crazy. They, 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 there's no evidence for this. Well, you've just wiped out an incredible number of drugs that are based on that very synaptic concept. No kidding. And receptors in lipid bilayer membranes, they don't exist. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, the beautiful thing emerging from this conversation is that knowledge is is something that is forever growing and transforming. And if you get caught in a static dogma, then you are actually not flowing with life itself because it, yes. in order to evolve in life, you have to evolve in your knowledge or you're going to never be able to interface with the in changes in the environment. Right. In order to do that, I the thing that I think is the key is is and here here's the sort of answer to your question why don't why isn't this common in medicine i decided 40 years ago that that i was not going to be invested in the answer that i got mm -hmm. in other words if bacteria cause disease fine yes if they don't cause disease fine mm -hmm. like i have no dog in that race right and if viruses are pathogenic fine and if viruses are not fine, I got no dog in that in that hunt. And so then I can just look at the evidence, and no matter what anybody says about off my rocker or, you know, I can show you the evidence. I can show you the steps that I took mm -hmm. to come to the conclusion that the the fact of ribosomes is an artifact. Now I could be wrong. Right. I get things wrong all the time. But more and more, when I stick to the process of don't be emotionally invested in the outcome. Yes. Or financially. Right. Financially That's is there. a very important one. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whatever it is. If, if you find out that it's better to eat good food and, you know, move your body in a certain way. And somebody else says, doesn't matter what you eat, it doesn't matter if you ever move. I mean, I could care less which way is right, except I can tell you that knowing your evidence versus the other one, turns out you're right. Yes.
you know, I, I have to keep an open mind because if I didn't, I would never have been successful as a therapist, yeah, uh, nor, nor a husband, nor a father, nor, nor a, a businessman or a person. And, uh, you know, we, we all, me and you are two people that know that closed mindedness is really one of the root diseases of the entire situation the whole planet is in right now. Absolutely. In fact, I used to think that, so why do people get sick? And I used to say injuries, you know, you fall off a horse, uh, starvation, right? You know, and that means all the things we know it means. Yeah. Poisoning. Yeah. And that means, you know, all the things we know that can mean. And I used to think that was the three. Now I think there's a fourth one, and I don't know the proper word for it, but I call it delusional. Right. I was going to add to your three psychological imbalance. Right. Or you you believe things like I think it was Mark Twain or somebody said, it's not the things that you don't know that hurt you. It's the things you know for sure, but just ain't so. Well, Mark Twain also said something that I have at the beginning of most of my slideshows in the Institute, which is very true and profound. And I had my artist do a little image of people when they're getting their graduation certificate, having their heads welded shut. He said, never let your schooling get in the way of your education. Yes. So a couple of things. One, you know, what you're describing with all this goes right back to the whole issue of Bruce Lipton's research, which led him to show that the epigenetics was really the driving force and that you could even take the nucleus out of a cell and it would still function. And of course, that triggered a huge backlash, but now it's becoming more accepted that epigenetics is really probably more of a concern than, than the genetics themselves. So there's uh, just an example of observation leading to learning that turns out to be quite practical, in my opinion. Right. But even, you know, not to, not to like take everything further, but that's sort of my thing. Mm -hmm. It turns out that even the idea that, like I said before, that proteins are coded for by genes turns out to be not true. Yes. Now, some of them are. We have a core number of, of genes which make a sort of core proteins like collagen, etc. Uh, but let, let me give you another example of, of the, the sort of weirdness of science, if I, if I can. So here I am in, in Duke undergraduate, right? My third year, I'm, you know, biology undergraduate, and I was, you know, a good student, as they say. And they let me into this graduate level course with a guy who was like six-time Duke professor of the year. He was a real big shot in cell biology and genetics. And, you know, I've heard he was nominated for a Nobel Prize or something like that. Mm -hmm. And his specialty was the folding of proteins, which is a huge thing. Yes. And so he was going to demonstrate for us how, as you probably know, the, the genetic strands, the DNA, if you look at a normal cell, you can't see it because it's unfolded, right? right. Like on. Mm -hmm. Then when the cell is going to divide, it goes into these chromosomes, which you can see, right? So somehow these long strands of DNA get packed into these little chromosomes, right? You with me? Yes. So he's going to show us how that works because that's his research. 
So he makes an experiment in the class or a demonstration. He puts uh, like like hooks all over the classroom and he and he winds string ten times around the classroom. And then he has a thimble about this big, you know, like a big thimble that you you know darn your socks with. Yeah. He says, I'm going to, this is the approximate size of the DNA and the chromosomes, right? Yeah. So he's going to show us how he packs this in. So he takes the string and he starts folding it and packing it into the thimble. And he gets about one and a half times around. And then he can't pack any more string into the thimble. And he, and he starts pushing it with his hand and st- he has a stick and he starts, and he, and then he says, and this is how miraculous this is, that somehow the cell knows how to pack this amount of material into this little space. And everybody in the room, all these graduate students and PhDs and everything, they erupt in joy like, oh my God, the, the human body is miraculous. And I still remember I'm sitting there 20 years old thinking to myself, what the hell? He just showed me that this can't work. Right. <laughs> he just showed me that this is nonsense, that you can't put that much stuff in a thimble. And and there is no magical force that stuffs it in a thimble. And and of course I didn't say anything because then they, you know, flunked my butt. But but I, I was left with that, like, wait a minute, this just proved that this isn't right. Now I don't, not necessarily saying I know how that works. I understand what you're but saying. I know that that DNA does not get packed into that chromosome. You know how it doesn't work. Yeah, I know that it can't be like that. And that's the problem. The, they somehow think there's these unseen magical properties, which they can't explain, like nanomotors and pumps and all this. They can't see them. They don't even make sense energetically, like if you run the numbers and do the math. But somehow they must be doing that. Dostoevsky must have blown up your house. Right. You know, um, what that reminds me of is, are you familiar with Arthur M. Young at all? He invented the Bell helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. He talks about how at one time, lightning struck a barn that had a bunch of pigs in it caught on fire burned down and roasted all the pigs and the natives went out and thought god we can't waste this meat so they tried it and it tasted really good so the thing he he points out he says now the question is will they keep building barns and lighting them on fire or realize you can roast one pig at a time right <laughs> you know? right <laughs> Exactly. And, and, and then they make this sort of as if it's somehow magical that only lightning could roast a pig properly. Yes. And then it becomes dogma because somebody gets a Nobel Prize for pig roasting. And then forevermore, you can't say anything like, hey, wait a minute, why don't we just build a fire and roast one so we don't have to eat 20 pigs in a city and cut the whole forest down to keep building barns yeah but um in my studies uh i don't know if you've ever seen the series by david wilcock on gaia tv called wisdom teachings no 
Okay, it's very deep and comprehensive. And in there, he actually exposes the research of scientists looking into protein folding in, in uh, DNA. And I can't remember the names of the scientists, but they analyzed how the proteins were folded and they used a sonic geometry, which looks at the fact that angles and geometry are correlated with, with sound frequencies, yeah. which correlates to cymatics. And basically what they were showing is that the proteins are actually being folded in some way. There's a correlation to the sound frequencies moving through the body. And, and sound here is, of course, not audible sound. It's, it means any thing in the spectrum of vibration. But they were looking at the actual folds of key proteins and, and the angles and using this principle of the mathematics of sonic geometry and showing that these sounds actually had correlations with key frequencies and somehow, and I don't remember the exact details of it, but it just, what I'm pointing out is that this approach was saying that the human body is responding to some flow of energy and information that is affecting how proteins are folded. Yeah, I, I, all I can tell you exactly how proteins are folded by the interaction of these very frequencies you're talking about, interacting with water and creating uh, forces and pressure that fold the protein. Yes. That's all there is to it right there. Right. And the water, of course, is, is one of the amazing mediums that is used to generate cymatic patterns because yes, it's, exactly. it's such a perfect carrier for those frequencies right and cymatics proves that the patterns are from different energy wavelengths yes. different frequencies interacting with water that folds and structures matter and that's what a human being or a living system is energy plus water folding the stuff dissolved in the water and there you go and and the word information means information. So when you look at the fact that energy is carrying information and that we are a biological product that is in formation, it lends itself to the fact that, that cosmic forces are at play, not, yes. not just local forces. Right. There's a lots of forces uh, from Saturn and the moon and God knows where. And so that's the thing is, we would have so much fun as a culture looking into what's really happening if we stop studying garbage all the time. Absolutely. Like, let's study what happens with Saturn or the moon or with love or with, you know, like hateful people or, or nice people or wise people or your dog who loves you, you know. Does that give an energy that folds the protein and makes you healthier? I mean, we don't know these things because we're busy studying garbage all the time. Well, actually, I'm curious if you're aware of this research. Are you familiar with the book titled Blueprint for Immortality by Harold Saxon Burr? No. Well, no. you, would, of all people, would find this very fascinating. I'll bet. Harold Saxonburr was a professor at Yale University. In 1947, he developed a study because he felt that water 
carried consciousness and that it would have an influence on the growth of a living organism. Yeah, there you go. Okay, now this is 1947. So he yeah. took seeds of the same genus, planted them and split them into two groups. All the same seeds, i.e. the same genus. He then took mason jars of tap water, had his students in his class hold on to the jars in their hands for at least three hours, and then he took mason jars of water to psych wards where people were locked up for being psychologically ill, and he got permission for them to hold and interact with the mason jars of water, and he watered the plants in group B with that water, and when you see the pictures of how the plants grew, first in the student group, they grew normally. But in the water, in the group of plants that were watered with the water held by psychologically ill people, the plants grew crooked, gnarled, knotted. They didn't often grow toward the sun. They bowed down. They looked just like plants that grow next to negative energy lines in the earth with discordant energies in them. Yeah, I I totally believe that. Although, frankly, I would have believed if the psych ward people got better growth than the students. Uh, but I can <laughs> I can see your point. It's exactly what I've been saying for the last year. Yes, it it was a, a quite impressive piece of research because of the time it was done in 1947, yes. and B because it was so deadly obvious that whatever was in the water. And it was the same tap water out of the same tap that the students held. But yeah. the, the energy, therefore, and information that was imprinted into that water from people that were mentally ill directly affected the growth and development of the plants. Yes. Water is a essentially a flexible computer with an infinite number of sites that collects energy, transforms itself, which we call memory. and then imparts that information onto other living systems and proteins and minerals and all the rest to create what you say, the formation of a living system. There's, I'm curious if you're aware of this. Uh, Greg Braden on his series titled Missing Links, which is also very, very good, cited research by, first of all, he pointed out that because it was because water has such a, a vast capacity to store information, he cited the fact that the Cray supercomputer, which up till the advent of quantum computers, is cited as the world's most powerful computer, and the hard drive is made of water. He also cited other is that right? yes, yes. He also what? cited other no. major organizations who have supercomputers that also use water as the hard drive. Wow. But scientists were confused as to how in the hell water itself could store this amount of information. So they began researching it scientifically, and they came up with something quite interesting that I think you're going to find fascinating. They found out that the water is not actually carrying the information, that the water is interfacing with a field, a non-local field in space and that the information is stored just like Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenic fields in a field that is non-local. Yes. 
And I totally can I can totally picture that. And in my meditations on water, when I ask my soul, how is it that water has all these magical properties? And, and now I'm getting esoteric, but I do a lot of this type of research. My soul showed me that water is the physical counterpart of ether. And that the, the implicate order using David Bohm's model manifests itself in its first stage of explication through water. What do you mean by ether? Ether, would, you got so, solid, earth, solid, liquid, water, fire, gas, and then... So a, you mean that in the Steiner sense of the etheric body? Uh, not the etheric body, the ether that is the substrate in which the zero-point energy field holds its energy and information. So what yeah. Einstein called the ether and what Michelson Morley apparently proved didn't exist, but Greg Braden cites more recent research by the United States Air Force and one other organization who redid Michelson Morley's experiments with much more advanced uh, technology and proved that the ether actually does exist. Yeah, so it's the, what I would say, it's the ground substance out of which matter materializes it's what the alchemists would have called the prima matria the yeah, first right. substance the first substance it's the octave yeah. above plasma so you got yeah. fire then you got plasma and now the electric universe and others show that the entire of space is just full of plasma yeah but beyond plasma the octave up which in metaphysics would be the source of the causal body would be the ether yeah so my soul showed me that Water is the physical mirror image of yes. the ether, and that the ideas in the mind of God, if you will, or, or source, are actually coming through into the water because the water is the conductor of source information, or what David Bohm called the implicate order, the idea of a human, the idea of a corn yes. plant, the idea of a kangaroo. It manifests in this dimension via water as the conductor of the concept or the idea of the essence of the thing i think that was brilliantly put thank you i because i can't find answers to a lot of these things sometimes i have to meditate on these things for honestly years at a time yeah you know right. it took me several years to finally get real clear what my soul was telling me that love was and and it, but i no, but that, what you just said is exactly, I mean, I don't know if I could have put it like that, but that is exactly what the science shows is happening. Yes, and 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 I've also got a book, two books by Dennis Klocek. Are you familiar with him? Yes. Okay, and he does a great job of showing Steiner's concepts of how the... I'm using my own words. The archetype of the plant and animal forms and the plants is contained in the stones, particularly crystalline forms, and that the water is actually carrying those imprints out of the stone into manifestation. Yeah, I mean, the problem with for me is when you get too wordy with this, uh -huh. you can... You like, I don't want to lose the thread for myself or with people. So, like, you almost never hear me talking about 
etheric bodies and stuff like that. Because if I don't, if I'm not able to describe exactly what I'm talking about, like you just did with water, right? And I don't want to go there because I think I don't have the concept. Then I just am, am essentially parroting somebody else's ideas. Yeah, well, I don't use the words unless I feel I understand yeah. the concept. Right. So that. So yeah, that that one. I'm not so sure exactly what he's talking about, and I'm not so sure he knows what he's talking about either. So possibly not. But when I look at all the sciences that I've looked at, even the research in consciousness, going back to Gebser's first stage of consciousness, which is the archaic, the archaic level of consciousness, which is what he correlates to the beginning of the earth is tied to the fact that the earth is full of crystals that are conductors of cosmic energy and information and that those crystals are transmitting the energy and information into the water of the planet which then becomes the basis of biological growth and if you study the egyptian history and how they used water and crystals to generate energy to power pyramids and many other things by capturing sunlight with huge stone spires which were filled with crystals and were tuned to specific frequencies and built in pools of water which they recently found were plumbed with copper pipes right into the pyramids and they investigated this and they had an electrical engineer looking at it and he showed that they were actually taking long Sun long form waves of the sun, not not the visible light waves, but long waves, more like radio waves. And they were using the piezoelectric effects of the crystals to step down, transform that energy or step it up, depending on what they wanted to use very specific frequencies, which they were clearly harvesting and using. Nobody's figured out what because they had in one site they had, if I remember right, something like. Up, up to like a hundred different spires, each tuned to different frequencies that were all being plumbed into a pyramid. Yeah, well, so here's a here's another way to say that. As soon as we're done here, I am going to go jump into my top, my hot tub behind our house. Yeah, and in, in that hot tub, the water in the tub is in a twenty four hour, you know, continuous circulation. Right. Through a vortex that's made out of rose quartz crystals. Yes. To imprint the energy of the of the of the quartz into the water right. and to make it into a essentially a healing bath. Yes. And so I it's that's a, a sort of real world description of of you know how people can start to work with these very principles you're talking about. And essentially bring the energy of the crystal into the water to actually affect the quality of a human being's life. I'll have to send you pictures of my water charger. I've been building water chargers out of stone for many years. I teach classes on it, and I have one that's uh, big enough. I built it here at our new property. took me three months to build it. It'll hold around 73-gallon glass bottles of water, but I carefully construct it using alternating polarities of stone from black lava all the way up to rose quartz and even higher frequency crystals. Yeah, right. And it, <laughs> so you're a master at this. It, it, it does wild stuff. For example, yeah. on the full moon, the water, actually, when I give it to people, they often think it's carbonated, but it has so much energy, it bubbles on your tongue. 
Yeah. And at the new moon, it feels like a solvent. It literally feels like it's penetrating right through your tongue and right. your body. So you you really taken this to an art form, and I and all I know right now is this is where the action is. Oh yes, it is. It, exactly what you're talking about is is the future of medicine and the future of humanity is to understand the the energy side of it, the crystal side of it, and the water side of it. Amen. Bring those together and. You know, that's where the food comes and that's where the movement and all the rest of it comes from. And that requires that we turn our engines of consciousness and research back to the earth and not to escaping the earth in a fucking rocket to go to Saturn or somewhere else. Yeah. And and not studying garbage all the time. Yes. Like it's enough of the garbage. There's nothing to find. Let's study how we make life and how people can have a good quality of life and stop putting them in prisons all the time. Amen. Well, I've got you because uh, we've kind of gone through this, but I want to loop back. I was waiting for a chance to talk to you about this. When I was developing my course, because I'd seen just countless people with parasite infections and, and I've been very successful at helping people clear them. But one of the most common infections that I would see clinically is Ascaris worm infections, especially females. And as I was doing a lot of research into the worms, I found some different research from biologists and they, they showed something interesting. They showed that the, the flesh of the worm parasites, the Ascaris and other worms, nematodes, was very high in C-reactive protein, which we call shock proteins. And I noticed that a lot of people that I work with who eat a standard American diet have very low turgor in their tissue. Their elasticity is very poor. I've seen a lot of athletes get stretch marks from bodybuilding that, that people with better diets aren't getting. And I've seen, you know, all the rapid aging in, in people, you know, like I'm, I'll be 60 this year and I can still outrun and outlift most of the professional athletes I coach and they always ask me how I do it. I say, I do it the same way I'm teaching you to do it. Pay attention to how you live and how you eat and stay close to the earth and don't fill your body full of so-called scientifically validated pills. But while I was doing this research, I had this theory jump into my head and my theory was that the body may be harvesting worm parasites to get C-reactive protein to keep the cells healthier and enhance the person's survivability. And when I talked to Philip Callahan, I proposed that to him. And he said, you know, I've never thought of it that way, but I think that's a very viable hypothesis. I'm just wondering what your thoughts on it are. You know, I, I, I can't really comment on the <clears throat> C-reactive protein part, but like I said, um, Parasites, you know, they could be pathogens, but a lot of times they're clearing something in our tissues that, you know, shouldn't be there, be it heavy metals or some, you know, it, the inflammation, inflammatory response is the body's way of getting out of poison. Yes. It, just like if you get a splinter in your finger, you make pus. That's an inflammatory response. The problem is not the pus, it's the splinter. So yes. let's say you have, you know, uh, glyphosate dissolved in your tissues and you, you 
you make an inflammatory response to get it out. Another way to get it out would be to get a, grow a worm and let them eat it. Yes. And so you're seeing, you're seeing both things together. The inflammatory response is the worm and the worm as just two of the options the body has. It's, it's like the body's saying, okay, do I want to make an inflammation? Well, not so much because then it might destroy my tissue. So let's grow a worm and they'll eat some of it and then I'll make a little inflammation. And then you see a correlation between CRP and worms and you think that they're causing each other, but they're both just the way the body is dealing with the real problem, which is that it's poison. Well, I, I, I don't disagree with that, but I'm going to expand what I'm trying to share so I think you can understand it in a, a little bit more depth. Having analyzed probably 1,500 people who had parasite infections, diet and lifestyle very carefully, I found a very, there's two classes of parasite infections that I found. One is parasites that people get when they go to the Amazon or, you know, more aggressive yeah. parasites. And then there's the parasites I call diet and lifestyle parasites. Yeah, right. And so I've seen very healthy people swim in rivers like the Amazon or something and get a, a a pathogenic parasite that has to be killed because it's, it's just a hunter type parasite. Yeah. But what I found very consistently is that there was a lot of processed crap, microwave garbage, living off fast food. That was the common theme. Too much sugar, what I call the four white devils, uh, you know, white processed sugar, dairy, bread, and salt were kind of the basis of the diets of the people that I found consistently with parasite problems. So what one of my theories was, is that the body may actually be harvesting parasites to get real food, to get raw food. And I found that you can't get rid of the parasites if you don't get the diet better. Their body just can't get rid of them. So I actually when I found this information on the C-reactive protein, I thought, you know, if I, if I had the time, I would love to look at a nutritional analysis of, of, of different parasites like worm parasites or, or the various pro parasites, because my suspicion was, is that may actually be a great improvement in their diet. And because a lot of them have such short life cycles, they live and die right in the digestive tract that the body actually may use those as a, uh, shall we say, a food supplement. Yeah, right. They're like, uh, they're like eating crickets or something. Yeah, exactly. To the yeah. teeth. No, I, I can see that. And, and I do, by the way, think that your categorization, there are aggressive parasites. Yes. And so that's not like bacteria or viruses. There are aggressive parasites. But, um, but I agree that, that we just... We're so quick to make superficial explanations when when you actually think about it like you're doing, you can actually come to something that's actually A, more true and B, more useful because the useful part is then you eat good food and you don't have parasites anymore. Right. And, and, and that's I also consulted Arden Anderson, who wrote the book Science and Agriculture, and he's a unique guy. I don't know if you're familiar with Arden Anderson, are you? No, Arden Anderson. You read more than I do. Okay, he's a he's an MD. He works uh, in in the uh, for the U.S. Air Force, 
And he's also got a PhD in soil science. So he's one of the few people that I know of in the world that's a medical doctor with a PhD in soil science. So uh, I've, his book, Science and Agriculture, is fascinating. I think you'd love it. Yeah. Um, I was talking to him about parasites, and I've just, I've, I found that you, you're just never going to get people through uh, parasite infections until you bring the quality of their food up for all the obvious reasons. One of the next questions I wanted to talk to you about is, it seems to me that the biggest challenge we face in medicine and healthcare across the board is a serious lack of honest education that isn't connected with the sales of drugs and other products about the true principles of diet and lifestyle. What do you feel would change, for example, if the $2 trillion stimulus package Trump handed out were, have been invest, were to have been invested in honest education that starts from the ground up so people really understood the kind of things we're talking about? I, I don't think no matter how much money or how much effort we put into honest education, the fact of the matter is we don't have the the people who can teach honest education no matter how much we pay them. Well, that's true, but I'm asking you to engage it conceptually. What do you think conceptually would happen if we invested $2 trillion in teaching people the basic principles like I teach and how to eat, move, and be healthy, or what Weston A. Price taught, or the basic, this is how nature works, this is how you should eat, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, all I can say, Paul, is I came to the point where I no longer believe in schools. <laughs> and so I would, I would uh, just let people figure, you know, we're going to have to let people go back to real lives and let them figure out for themselves based on growing their own food, taking care of pigs, being out in the sun, interacting with nature, that, and, and then interacting with older people who maybe have still some skills. Yes. This idea of somehow we can invest money with the teachers we have now, they don't know anything. Right. There's nobody to teach anything. I understand that. Well, I, you're, that's a hard one for me to swallow because I own an education institution. <laughs> well, you can you can keep teaching, but most of the people, there's no teachers. I understand totally. And I left school in the ninth grade because I got so pissed off that no one yeah, could answer right. my questions. Right. Who needs school? School was designed to keep people from being educated. Oh, of course. It teaches you what to think, not how to think. Yeah. Um, there was another thought that raced through my head, but I'll go to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. If you could visualize each human being as a cell. Oh, I was going to say, sorry. I was going to say the real teacher is what I call the pain teacher. I say when the pain teacher shows up in your life, you got a choice. Keep yeah. being a dumb fuck and doing what got you in trouble or listen. And yes. your pain, if you engage it, will guide you. If you keep drugging yes. it, you kill the teacher. Yes, exactly. And I think that's really the big lesson of the whole COVID. The pain teacher yes. is arriving in mass and we can't keep listening to the people that got us in the same fucking trouble in the first place. Yes. And you, you like the story of Sleeping Beauty, if your goal is to get rid of all the spindles in the kingdom, it'll never work. Right. You can't get rid of danger. Danger is how human beings learn. 
the idea that we can, the only time a human being is perfectly safe is when they're six feet under. Yes. And, and, uh, if we were having a metaphysical discussion, I would tell you that that may not even be true either. Yes. Right. Uh, Carl Jung says no man is fully alive until he has the power to destroy himself. So if anything, we should all be just dancing in the streets about right now. Yeah. If you could visualize each human being as a cell and a collective being called humanity, humanity here representing um, one large part, uh, excuse me, one large patient. So you get the metaphor. If if Tom and Paul and everybody else are cells in a living being called humanity, you with me? Yeah. What would your diagnosis be? We're in big trouble. <laughs> I thought you'd say that. But, you know, like, <laughs> let's just say if I would have said that to Carl Jung, he would have given me an answer. He would say, well, you're stuck in the eternal child archetype and you need to individuate and become an adult and take responsibility for yourself or you're going to die because the world can't sustain a bunch of children that aren't putting resources and energy back into the planet. They're just extracting it. Yeah, so, I can go along with that. Yeah, I'm just curious, as a physician, if you looked at humanity and said, what's the diagnosis, can you can you play the game with me a little? I mean, you know, we're we're in a we're either in a a serious and potentially terminal illness. Yes. Or we we have a a horrible illness and we're in a healing crisis. And not all of us are going to make it through this, but some of us are, and we can create a world that we couldn't hardly even imagine existing. And I think it's the latter. And I think if people see it like that, they will understand that this is, this is just the pain and the, the confusion of a healing process. Yes. Just to bring humanity to the next level of consciousness and Life will be so much better than anything we even imagined. Yes, I I really believe what I my feeling is, is that we're at a point now where through modern technology, we've come to clearly realize that what some guys doing in China affects me here in the United States and vice versa, that the world is not disconnected like we used to think of it. Right. You you got nuclear radiation in Japan. It's in your backyard. in No time. You got problems in Russia. It's over here in no time. So I, I really feel that we're at a time now where we really need to realize that we all need each other and that all of our lives and our so-called dreams all depend on the same things. That is the health of the soil, the water, the air and the basic resources. I feel that. And how we think. And how we think, which to, to realize that is changing your thinking. Yes. I really feel that the only way out of this is to stop all the nationalism and territorialism and say, look, we all need the resources. We all need each other's wisdom. We all need each other's beauty. We all need each other's intelligence. And we've got to work together to protect the dream board because it's like playing chess. If someone lights the board on fire, there's no way you can play the game really. So if we don't go back to the basics and say, let's task our militaries with 
doing something important like fighting the real enemy, which is corporations that are destroying the planet, poisoning the waters. And we've got to use military technology to clean the oceans, clean the garbage out of the ocean and put soldiers to work replanting trees. We've got to stop all the chemicals from using dangerous chemical companies, using dangerous chemicals like Roundup. We've got to get clear on what we all need together or none of us are going to make it. And when I see what Bill Gates is up to with all of his, you know, fake meats and GMO. Uh, Let, uh, you know what? Let's let's hold off there. And because even we, somehow we have to bring him along too. In, in, in what way? He's part of this whole humanity thing, too. Oh, yes, so he is. But but as you know, you've just got done talking about all sorts of people with a lot of really bad ideas and that we don't want to even worry about. He's going got to, a lot of bad ideas. We That's, don't. But so the see, this is his. This brings up a very important point. It's only because of free speech that we can be aware of all the so-called good ideas or bad ideas out there. But you see. If guys like Zach Bush are getting silenced or people like you or some of the people that are getting silenced that shouldn't be silenced, then we're not able to see some of the good ideas, even if other people think they're bad. And I think the fact that we have the ability to be aware that somebody with that much money and power has some ideas that aren't congruent with the fabric of how nature works and so what I'm saying is we need to sit together at a big round table and put all the ideas on the table and figure out together what is actually sustainable based on the principles of how life and nature works. The problem is how do you get corporate interest, interests to step down and say, let's look at what is actually going to save us rather than what's going to make us billionaires. Right. It's all about freedom. And, and if we really had freedom, we could probably work this out. But that's the, that's the job. We just have to keep fighting for and insisting on human beings have the right to be free, to think what they want, and uh, say what they need to say, and let the ideas, you know, it, it, let's have an, an idea marketplace, and, because our ideas will win. And and that includes sovereignty of your own body. This yeah, forced right. vaccination shit's dangerous as hell. I mean, this is yeah. scary stuff. Right. Hey, we had a good run, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, I do too. This was fabulous. Fantastic concepts, and and thank you for challenging me. I love it. I I especially when it's someone I respect, because then I know it's not just you know peacock showing feathers and all that crap. It's it's a real attempt to grow each other and and i love yeah that. no i i learned a lot i learned a lot this you you've you've done your homework it's very impressive paul and i yeah. uh, really appreciated this opportunity yes thank you uh tom if people want to uh follow you get more information buy your books is there any specific resources or links you'd like to share yeah, it's basically drtomcowan.com, D-R-T-O-M-C-O-W-A-N. And I think what we would hope is you subscribe to our newsletter. It's free. We have a bit shoot channel because we're having some issues with YouTube. And uh, my books are there. It's on uh, The Contagion Myth is on Barnes & Noble. Amazon wouldn't carry it. And um, there you go. We appreciate any interest in 
Yeah, and we appreciate your support as well, Paul. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, my my audience is very open-minded, very progressive, and I'm sure they're going to just love looking. And I, I think most of them know who you are. I've talked about your work for years and years in yep. the Institute. So I wouldn't be surprised if you get a lot of uh, interest from the audience. So thank you very much. Lots of love. Thanks for being you. Thanks for being such a great explorer and for being willing to be honest, even when it's not politically correct. And thank you for, um, I'm trying to find the right words. You know, uh, thank you for your willingness to be vulnerable in exposing your theories and concepts as you are, because I think most people are too insecure to put things on the table if they think they might not be publicly accepted and you're brave enough to do that. And I admire you deeply for that. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate this. All right. Lots of love. Have a great rest of your day. And hopefully along the way, we can get together again and see where else we can go to (laughs) support people. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Dr. Tom Cowan. You can visit Dr. Cowan's website at drtomcowan.com. That's D-R-T-O-M-C-O-W-A-N.com. To find out more about his books, listen to his podcast and other interviews with Dr. Cowan and shop his recommended products. Follow Paul on Instagram at paul.check, on Twitter at paulcheck, or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living 4D with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to check videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chikiva.com. Remember, you can read the show notes and find links to the resources mentioned in this episode at checkinstitute.com forward slash podcasts. That's C-H-E-K-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E dot com forward slash podcast.